It's a, jo- a joy to be with you. Um, the, the, the plan that I have for this hour with you this morning, I hope you all have a handout. If you don't, maybe, maybe we can get one to you. You should have a handout that says at the top, Compatibilism Biblically Understood. Does anyone need a handout that doesn't have one? There's a hand in the back. Most of you have it. That's good. A few around. If uh, ushers could just take note of that and get to handouts up, that would be great. Here's my strategy is the morning sermon that will come up next uh, is on divine inspiration of Scripture. And uh, one little part of that uh, has to do with the fact that um, there is a compatibility between the, the work of the Holy Spirit uh, to bring about the truth of Scripture so, so that the Bible is really God's Word but that happens through genuine, human, free, and responsible activity in writing what those authors want to write. So you have divine agency, uh, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You have divine agency in that the, the, the Bible is in fact the Word of God, but it is also genuinely the word of Paul, and the word of Isaiah, and the word of Moses, and the word of Peter. And, you know, so you have humans who really do genuinely, freely write what they want to write, but as they write, they write what God has directed them to write. And so you you have in the doctrine of Scripture, uh, with, with divine inspiration, this compatibility of divine agency and human agency, divine sovereignty and human freedom that come together. And so, uh, the, the doctrine of inspiration is just one of those, um, you know, obvious, huge examples of what theologians have called compatibilism, the compatibility of divine sovereign agency in bringing about what God wants to have happen and human responsible free agency to do what they freely do which accomplishes God's purposes and will. So I thought it would be good in this hour with you to spend a little more time on this notion of compatibilism. I mean, it's kind of a little bit advanced, you know. We're at a level here on this that, uh, honestly, a lot of Christian people never get. And I think it's a shame because it's really helpful to see this. I, I think, honestly, if you haven't seen this before, I hope anyway, you'll leave here saying, boy, I'm grateful that, I, that you know, I, I can see that now from Scripture. So we're going to look at, uh, at this notion of compatibilism, the compatibility of divine sovereignty and human agency as they work together. And uh, that, that'll help you, get, I mean, you'll be in, a, in a, an advantaged position then when it comes to the sermon because you'll be able to have a bigger framework for understanding the little bit that I do in the sermon on this. Okay, so Roman numeral one, if you have the handout, uh, divine determinism and human freedom are compatible precisely because... The Bible demonstrates that God's determination of what people do is compatible with those very people carrying out those determined actions with genuine human freedom and moral responsibility. So how how do we know that compatibilism is true? Because the Bible illustrates this for us over and over and over. As you read the Bible, you will come across compatibilist texts. Where, where indeed it is so true, that, that opening paragraph, where you look at it and you say, yes, God has determined what takes place here, but on the other hand, those people carry out what God determined take place with genuine human freedom and moral responsibility. 
So really, I, I want to think with you, first of all, about what compatibilism is. That's in Roman numeral 2 on the handout, how you recognize a compatibilist text when you come to it in the Bible. And by the way, there are e easily over a hundred. I've made a note of them. In my Bible, this Bible right here, I have a C in the margin every time I've noticed a compatibilist text. And, uh, and then I've made a list of them, and it's over a hundred passages in the Bible. It's really quite amazing. Uh, the, the, the compatibility of divine sovereignty and human freedom. So here are some, some characteristics, four characteristics for identifying uh, compatibilist texts in Scripture. The first one is this, is you notice there is dual agency, dual agency. Both divine and human agents are causally responsible for bringing about what occurs. Now, here's another way to think of that. Uh, if you're reading a passage and so, something takes place, something happens in that passage, and you ask the question, who was responsible for bringing that to pass? Who, who, who did this? Who, who brought this into being? And it's a compatibilist text, likely, if you're, the answer to that question is you have to give two answers. You have to say, well, those human beings did that. They, they made that decision. They, they acted in, in, a, in a way in which they, they freely chose to do, and they acted out of their own character, their own nature. Those human beings did that. But that's not the full answer. Uh, you also have to say, well, God did that. that that's something that God d deliberately brought to pass, and, and either, either answer is going to be inadequate without the other side, right? So, I mean, here's an obvious example. It's the last of the passages on the bottom of the page. Uh, think of the question of who put Jesus on the cross? How do you answer that question? Who put Jesus on the cross? Well, you have to say people did it. You know, goodness, Romans did that, and, and Jewish leaders who, who cried out, crucified Him, they did that. I mean, you, so you, ha you have to say human agency, right? H human beings put Jesus on the cross. But is that the whole answer? Absolutely not. The other, the other side of it is you have to say, to be faithful to the Bible, you have to say God did it. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So yet you have to say that God was the one who put, put His Son there on that cross. So that, that's the first, the first indicator of a compatibilist text is that you have dual agency. You have to say those human beings did it and God did it. And either answer without the other is incomplete. Make sense? Okay, now, here's the second quality, second characteristic of compatibilist texts. Secondly, the primacy of, the, of divine agency. Primacy of divine agency. Though both divine and human agency causally bring the action to pass, compatibilist dual agency is not merely collaborative dual agency, more on that in just a moment. It's not merely collaborative dual agency, since divine agency prescribes the content and the direction of the action. So, if you ask the question of these two agents, there's human agents and divine agents, does one of the two of them have primacy over the other? Is one of them the primary actor? And indeed, in compatibilist texts, what you find in every case, no exception to this, it's never the case that the human agent is the primary actor and God, God just goes along with what the human agent says. No, God is the primary agent and the human carries out something that God has directed. God, God has determined. God, God has chosen to bring to pass through human agency. So, the primacy of divine agency. So, so 
Now, track, track with me on this. Compatibilist dual agency is different from collaborative dual agency. Collaborative dual agency is something that we experience in life often. It's simply where two agents, two, two people, say, uh, work together, they collaborate to bring about the desired effect. And so, when, if you ask the question, how did this come about? Well, you have to say, well, Bill did it, but that's not the complete answer. You have to say, well, Fred did it, right? Because they both they worked together, but there wasn't a primacy with Bill or with Fred. They simply collaborated in bringing it to pass. So, that's a, that's a form of dual agency. You know, just saying Bill did it is insufficient. Boy, Fred would be insulted by that. Well, you know, Fred, Fred did it too, right? You know, so the two of them together. Here, here's an example uh, that uh, will help, I think, with this. Imagine uh, a very snowy winter day, and Sally is, has driven her car somewhere, and now, now she tries to leave, and she's stuck. Uh, the, the tires are spinning. She can't get out of, uh, out of the snow. She's just stuck in the snow. And uh, I'll use those two names again, so Bill and Fred. So, Bill happens to notice Sally's plight. Uh, he sees up ahead this car spinning tires, and so he, he comes over behind the car to push Sally out of the snow, and Fred from over here sees the same thing, and at the very same moment, he comes and to, to help us push Sally out of the snow, and so Bill and Fred together push Sally out of the snow. So there you have a good example of collaborative dual agency, right? They're, they're both doing it, and, and you say thanks to Bill, and you say thanks to Fred for helping Sally out. But what there isn't in collaborative dual agency is primacy, primacy of one of the agents who directed what took place, who is the one who designed the outcome and assured that that outcome would happen through the other agent's involvement. But that's the case in compatibilist passages of Scripture. You see the difference? So, compatibilist divine agency means that God has a primacy in which He directs and brings to pass exactly what He has designed, but He does this not unilaterally, but through the human agency of others that He involves in this. Okay, so that's the second aspect. There's dual agency. Secondly, primacy of divine agency. And then third… There is human moral culpability. This is amazing. Human moral culpability. Although divine agency has primacy, human agents are held fully morally responsible for what they do. Now, why do I make that claim? Well, simply because over and over and over in the Bible, when you look at examples of compatibilist uh, uh, compatibilist dual agency, when you see examples of it, here's what you find, is that yes, God is the one who regulated what took place, but those human beings, especially if you're in a context where some evil takes place or some, some wickedness takes place, through those human agents, they bear responsibility. They are not off the hook, right? So, those human agents who did the wicked thing cannot point to the fact that the Bible declared God is the one who prescribed this, God is the one who directed this, God is the one who ordained this, and therefore, we human agents are off the hook. We're not morally responsible. Oh, no, you do not find that anywhere in the Bible. 
I mean, just back again to the, the example of the crucifixion of Christ, Acts 2.23, when Peter says, that first uh, verse that's given there, bottom of the page, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, well, who has primacy? Well, obviously God does. This is His predetermined plan according to His foreknowledge. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. Don't you know that that phrase, godless men, is an indictment? It's not merely a description. It's not merely saying these people are, you know, they don't care about God and the things that they're doing. Oh, no. That phrase by Peter is an indictment of them for the evil they have done. They are not off the hook. They can't point to the first part of that verse that says that he's delivered over by the predetermined plan of God and say, hey, good news. We're not held responsible then. Oh, no, you are. And you see this over and over and over in the Bible. You never find a place where there is compatibilist agency, the, the two of them together, where, the, where God has primacy and the human agent is off the hook, is not held responsible for what he does. So somehow we've got to have a, an understanding of how these things work together in a way that accounts for what's in the text. Do you see it? We can't go according to our logic and say, well, you know, because God is the one who's primary in this. He's the one who directed what took place. Well, they can't help be held responsible. I'm sorry, but that just doesn't fit the Bible. So, let's, let's be faithful to the Bible, right? Amen on that? Amen. So, you, you can look at that, this with me at a few, few of the examples I have in just a moment. So, number three, then as we see the, the ongoing reality of human moral culpability, even though God has been the primary agent. And then number four is this, divine moral praiseworthiness. Even when human agents are morally culpable for evil that they do, God is always morally praiseworthy for His action, bringing good to pass through the evil that is done. A great example of that is Genesis 50, 20. You know, Joseph to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So God is praiseworthy. Think, think of the cross of Christ, the most horrid, heinous act of murder ever, that ever has occurred in all of human history, occurred on the on, on the cross of Christ where Jesus, the innocent Son of God, was, was crucified. Those men who did that are morally culpable for the evil they did, but God is morally praiseworthy. Is there anything that, that, for which God is more morally praiseworthy than the cross? So, indeed, the praise comes to God for the good that comes from the very evil that is done by those human agents for which they are responsible. So, you know, it's just an amazing thing to behold this in the Bible. I th I, honestly, I think if people just paid attention to what they were reading in the Bible, uh, they, they would see this because it's, so, it's in so many passages. Okay, let me take you to just a few here that I have on your sheet that I want to think about with you. My favorite one, to be honest with you, is Genesis 45. That's why I put it top of the list, because it is such a vivid example of all four of these characteristics that you see in this text. You, you, you see dual agency, uh, you see the primacy of divine agency, you see human moral culpability, and you see divine moral praiseworthiness. I mean, you see all four of those in this account of the, the, the interaction that Joseph has with his brothers. Okay, the background, of course, you know, for, to Genesis 45 is the fact that uh, um, 
Joseph was sold into Egypt by his brothers. You remember they were jealous? You know, Joseph had the coat of many colors from his father. Uh, and, and even in, in, in a stri- more striking ways, Joseph alone was given these dreams by God. Do you remember that? These dreams, I think that's back in about chapter 38 or so of Genesis. These dreams are given to Joseph, and, uh, you know, the, both of the dreams that are given to him have the same basic effect. Namely, there will come a day when his brothers bow down before Joseph, and they hated those dreams. They hated Joseph because of those dreams. In fact, when Jacob sent Joseph to go and see how his brothers were doing, uh, the first thing they said when they saw Joseph approaching him was, you remember? Here comes that dreamer. Oh, they hated those dreams, you know, that God had given Joseph that indicated this runt brother, you know, the young brother was going to be the one who, before whom they would bow. No way, they said in their prideful spirits, right? So, this relationship between Joseph and his brothers is the background here. And Joseph then was sold into Egypt. And of course, goodness, they, they, they were very excited about this. They, they got money from, from getting rid of their brother and, uh, they, you know, were, were able to pad their pockets with it. Uh, at the very same time, they were c- committing him to a, the rest of his life of misery. They had no idea what God was going to do through this, namely, eventually raise Joseph up to be second in command in Egypt, uh, for, from which place then he was the one who regulated during the seven years of plenty gathering grain and f- food together to have, to have an abundance there in Egypt, uh, preparing for the seven years of famine. And when the seven years of famine came, of course, the Israelites are affected by it too. Jacob and his family is affected by it. So the brothers go down and buy grain from Egypt. Who are they, who are they dealing with? Their own brother Joseph, and they don't even know it. So, here in chapter 45 is the moment when Joseph decides to make himself known to his brothers. And here's what we read. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Stop. Is that true? Whom you sold into Egypt. Did they do that? Absolutely they did. I mean, everything you read in the narrative leading up to this point, that wouldn't raise a red flag at all. Of course they sold him. You know, I mean, goodness, their original plan was to kill him, and, and uh, Reuben intervened, their oldest brother intervened, and said, oh, no, you can't kill him. You'll bring our father down to the pit. And, but then when, a, when the Midianite caravan came along, they, they sold him into Egypt. Everything in the narrative affirms the truthfulness of that statement. Okay, so, so are they involved as eight, an agent that brought about Joseph being in Egypt? How did Joseph get to Egypt? They sold him there. Okay, that's true. Look, looks pretty simple. Ah, keep reading. I'm your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Ah, it's complicated. This is not a matter of single agency. How do you answer the question, how did Joseph get to Egypt? Well, the brother sold him. It's a very simple answer. Single agency. Oh, no. Don't be angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me. Now, notice the language here parallels, the God sent me parallels, you sold me. So, it is not the case that that Joseph is here saying, you sold me, but after you did that, then God figured out a way to take the evil that you did and turn it into good. 
Oh, no. Back, back when they sold him to, into Egypt, what else was happening? God sent me into Egypt. And you realize, well, Joseph got there only one way, humanly speaking, through the selling of the brothers. So it has to be the case that Joseph goes to Egypt both because of the selling of the brothers and the sending of God that took place. Okay, so you have, you have dual agency in this. This is not single agency that God brings about some good from it. No, this is dual agency. How do you answer the question, how did Joseph get to Egypt? The brothers sold him and God sent him. They go together. Okay, now the next question is, is there primacy? Right? Is there primacy of one agent over the other? Okay, keep reading with me. So don't be angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Stop. Notice in verse 7, when Joseph is emphasizing what actually took place here, that one of the agents of the dual agency, the brothers who sold him, God who sent him, one of the agents drops out of the picture. Which one has the primary place in the account of what happened? God sent me. Do you see it? So there is obviously divine primacy. The, the divine agent is the primary agent. His se sending of Joseph is, is really accounting for their selling of him. And if that isn't clear enough, then verse 8, now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. It was not you. Now, it's so clear then, isn't it, that there's primacy of the divine agency. And again, because it is not the case that God took the action that they did and turned, made good out of it, but rather God's sending happened through the brother's selling, then you have to realize that God had primacy in what they did, in, in the very actions that they did. Okay, now the next question becomes, do they bear moral responsibility for this? Now, I didn't have room on the handout because I wanted to keep it to one page. Um, but if you turn to Genesis 50, if you have your Bibles, just turn there for a moment with me. I want you to see that indeed there is an answer to this question of whether or not they rightly continue to bear responsibility for what happened. Genesis 50, verse 15 uh, Jacob has just passed away, just died. And so we read this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? You see it? They know that what they did was wrong. In other words, they're not pointing back to Genesis 45 verse 8 that says, now therefore it was not you who sent me here but God, and they're not pointing to that and saying, hey, we can't be held responsible for this. We, we, you know, God is the one who did this through us, so we're, we're off the hook on this. Oh, no, they know that they are guilty. They know that they have done a wicked thing. And we say that in verse 15, keep reading with me. So they sent a message to Joseph, verse 16, saying, your father charged before he died, saying, they made this up, I'm quite sure, but anyway, here, here it is, verse 17, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers. There it is again, right? What did they do? They committed a transgression 
and their sin, there it is again, for they did you wrong, there it is again. I mean, goodness, they are highlighting the fact that they have done what is wrong before God and, and to their brother. Now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of your father. And Joseph wept uh, uh, as they spoke to him. Uh, then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? In other words, Joseph says, I'm not going to be the one who judges you. But that shouldn't give them very much comfort, because am I in God's place? What's God going to do? Hold them accountable, right? And then comes this famous verse, As for you, you meant evil against me. There it is. So Joseph affirms exactly what they stated, and that is they bear moral culpability moral responsibility for the evil that they did. So then, the fourth aspect, the fourth characteristic of compatibilist texts is God's praiseworthiness. Genesis 50, 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So here you have the design of God from the very beginning working through the wicked desires of the brothers to bring about in the end the good that He intended for the, the the salvation, not, not eschatological salvation, but the, the, the salvation in history for, from this famine, uh, br bringing them food that they needed, uh, keeping them alive during this famine, the, the salvation of the people of Israel, Jacob and his family, through the kindness of God to design this. So, all four characteristics are fulfilled, aren't they? Uh, it's dual agency, it's the primacy of divine agency. The brothers are morally accountable for what they did, and God is morally praiseworthy for what He did. Okay, now, just, just I want to think with you a bit more uh, about this. I won't spend this much time on the other passages, but this, this one I think is really helpful. I want, I want to, to explore with you the question, how could the brothers' selling of Joseph into Egypt be God's sending of Joseph into Egypt? How could this be? What, what could God do? that would result in God actually not just taking what they do and making good from it, but actually proactively bringing about the sending of Joseph to Egypt through the selling of Joseph by the brothers. Are you, you getting the question that I'm asking? What, what could God do to actually bring this to pass? Because I think at the most basic level, we have to say they're both true. We, 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 can't, we can't deny this. If you're going to be faithful to the Bible, they're both true. God sent him. The brothers sold him. We, we have to accept this as true. So, I'm just pressing it one more step in asking the question, how could it be that God could send Joseph into Egypt through the brothers' selling? So, here, here's my suggestion to you, is that God knows all… Uh, he, he, know, he knows, first of all, the natures of these men of these brothers. He knows their natures perfectly. He knows everything about them. He knows, he knows what they're inclined to do, the kinds of things that they would have a, have a, a propensity to do. He, he, he knows their, their appetites, their tastes, their desires, right? And, and so, God, God knows the natures of these brothers. Secondly, He also knows the kinds of things that would, as it were, elicit within them a highest desire to do one thing or another. By the way, human freedom… This is a big, a big subject that I'm just, you know, giving in a brief comment. A human freedom is not what many of us think freedom is, namely the power of contrary choice. 
You're free, you're free, genuinely free in making a choice if when you choose one thing, you could have chosen its opposite or you could have chosen otherwise. That's the common understanding of freedom out there. But you know what? That just doesn't fit the Bible at all. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work with divine sovereignty. Human freedom, thank, thankfully, Jonathan Edwards helped us with this a lot. I mean, it really is in the Calvinist tradition, but Edwards, more than anyone else, has helped with this in his treatise on the freedom of the will. And Edwards makes the point that freedom is our ability to choose according to what we most want, uh, according to our highest desire, uh, our, our, uh, our, our great, greatest um, uh, inclination, highest inclination. I, I've called this in, in writings that I have done, freedom of inclination. That's a phrase that Edwards will use sometimes of this. So, so we, we, we act according to what we most want. Uh, we always do that. And by the way, that concept has enormous implications for sanctification. You know, this is just, you don't have to pay me extra for this. It's just added on here. Uh, enormous implications for sanctification because if it's true that we always do what we most want, then what we have to do is bring into our lives stimuli like going to church, like, like uh, listening to good preaching, like being in your Bibles in the morning, you know, and have, having your devotions. Bring into our lives stimuli that would result in creating within us, eliciting from us higher desires to do what we should do and minimizing things that our, our corrupt, sinful side of us would, would otherwise want to do. Okay, so we, freedom is we do what we most want. And, and so God knows, given their natures, given circumstances around them, around them, the things that they would most want to do given those circumstances. Why do you think God gave the dreams to, the dreams to Joseph? Because he knew, given those dreams, what their response would be. Oh, my goodness, they would hate him even more. You see it? Now, is God, is God wrong, culpable in giving those dreams to Joseph? Oh, no, he's presenting truth. See, when God, God oftentimes presents truth as truth, and yet we receive it as, as some kind of a, an affront or an insult, I mean, we see that in Romans 1, right? The creation of the world, but we don't want that, right? We turn away from that. So, God presents truth to Joseph through those dreams. He tells those dreams to his brothers that they're true, and, and they're outraged by that. So, why did God give the dreams to them? Because in all likelihood, those dreams only aggravated their hatred for Joseph in order that in this moment when the time comes to sell him into Egypt… They'll do, they'll, they'll do exactly that because of how much they hate him, how much they resent him. But let, let's not get there quite yet. So, now, now imagine the situation now. Joseph is with them, and, uh, and their, their first desire, what is their highest desire? You know, they do, you do what you most want. What is it they want to do with Joseph For, at first? They want to kill him, right? But notice God intentionally has Reuben present. When their desire is to kill Joseph, Reuben is present who says, no way, we'll bring our father down to the pit. You know, he'll, he'll die if we, if we kill Joseph. So, so, indeed, they decide not to do that. Their highest desire instead is to, is to dig a pit for him to be in and wait for another plan. But then when the Midianite caravan comes along, guess who is absent? Reuben. 
He's not there. And so when the plan is, let's sell him into Egypt. Let's get money from, from him and uh, be able to, uh, to, to give him a miserable life until he dies as a slave in Egypt. That's perfect. When that's the plan, Reuben is absent. How do we know Reuben is absent? Because after this takes place, Reuben comes back and says, where's Joseph? And they tell him what they did, and he was horrified at this. So, when the plan is to kill Joseph, God, God doesn't want Joseph killed. He wants him in Egypt, right? So, when the plan is to kill Joseph, Reuben is there, and he keeps them from doing it. But then when the plan is to sell Joseph into Egypt, God arranges it so Reuben is absent, and they carry it out. So, what I'm suggesting to you is that God is able to control the circumstances in such a way that they freely do what they most want. There's nothing constrained, nothing manipulated. They do exactly what they most want, but God is able to control the circumstances in such a way that what they most want to do fulfills exactly what God has designed take place. So they sold him, and God sent him as one of the same action. Okay. Well, that's a that's a, uh, a very important passage, I think, in, in helping us see these compatibilist passages. Let, let's look at another one. This is, this is actually a very interesting one because it's an example of people doing good things, doing something kind, not a wicked thing like the brothers of Joseph did, but something good. This is in Exodus chapter 3. Moses taught, I'm sorry, God speaking to Moses, and we read this. God said to Moses, I will give this people, Israel, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now, this is an amazing thing. When you think of the Exodus story and all of the plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians. I mean, this is, this is prophesied in Exodus 3 before the beginning of the ten plagues, right? And so, here, here we have these plagues that are going on in Egypt. You would think the Egyptians' attitude toward the Israelites would be of what sort, what kind of attitude would they have? We hate those people. I mean, goodness, look, look at what their God is doing to us. You know, He's, he's afflicting us with these frogs and these gnats and, and the, the bloody water of the Nile and so on. <coughs> Excuse me. I mean, you, you would just never, you would never imagine that the attitude of the Egyptians toward the Israelites before they left Egypt was... We want to give you all these things, you know, silver and gold and fine clothing. I mean, you know, by the way, silver and gold meant as much to them then as it does to us now. I mean, this is, this is not like they're giving away Cheerios or something, you know, this silver and gold. This is, this is, these are material things that they value greatly. So, what, what in the world would lead the people of Egypt to give the Israelites before they leave Egypt, after nine of the plagues have taken place, after all this suffering that, is, that has come upon Egypt, why would they give them their silver and gold and fine clothing? Do you see it in this passage? It's right at the very beginning. God said to Moses, I will give this people, Israel, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So here's a case in which God works in their hearts to cause them to look upon the Israelites with favor. And so they gladly 
willfully give them then of their gold and silver and fine clothing. It's an amazing thing. So, it's a compatibilist passage, isn't it? So, so you ask the question, how, how did it happen that the, uh, the Egyptians gave their silver and gold and clothing to the, to the people of Israel? How did that happen? Well, one answer is they did it. They chose to do it. They, they, those, those women gave the, the Israelite women their, their uh, silver and gold and clothing. But the other answer is, from uh, verse 21 is, God did it. God did it through them. God worked in them to bring this to pass. Now, I think in this particular case, where, where a, a good thing takes place, this has to be accounted for, not merely by, like in the last example I gave with Joseph and his brothers, not merely by God controlling circumstances. Uh, th- this requires a change of their heart. So, God works within them internally to give them, to cause them to look upon the Israelites with favor and so they give. But in, at least in my mind, we have to s- distinguish between ways in which God works uh, such that human beings freely choose to do what is evil that fulfills God's good purposes, and a passage like this, where God works in such a way that human beings carry out what is good uh, that, that, uh, that advances God's purposes. And I think when it's a good thing in a case like this, that God works in a direct way in the hearts of these people. It doesn't mean they're saved. It doesn't mean they're converted. But it does mean that God prompts them to see the value, the, the goodness of giving to them, and they do. Now, probably, I'm guessing, uh, you know, hours later after this happened, they begin thinking to themselves, why did we do that? You know, why did we give them our silver and gold? I mean, what were we thinking? This is crazy. You know, by the way, this is just a very quick story um, that, uh, where this passage has meant a lot to, to me over the years. Uh, we moved from, uh, from Illinois. I was teaching at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School before coming to Southern 20 years ago this summer. We moved here right about this time uh, of the year, 20 years ago. And uh, our house, we, we had our house for sale in Illinois, um, uh, for sale by owner uh, for a couple of months leading up to our move down, down to Louisville, Kentucky. And we were not getting any good, you know, uh, offers on our house. And just, just people didn't seem to have an interest in it. Uh, we, we dropped the price a couple of times and, and still just nothing was happening. And I was getting worried because, boy, the weeks were going by. And, and uh, I mean, any of you who have sold a home, you, you know what's in this. So, I, I ended up calling the the the, uh, um, the, the bank advisor down in Louisville and asked the question, what, when do we need to have a buyer on our home in Illinois in order to have time to close and then close on the house in, uh, in Louisville? And uh, she looked over the materials and looked, looked at the calendar and she said, you need a buyer in one week. I said, oh my goodness, okay. So, that next morning after she told me this, I mean, I was sobered by that one week and we'd had it, you know, up for sale for months. I read this passage in, in Exodus. I was reading through the Bible and when came to that passage and I thought, you know what? Here, here's what needs to happen. We don't need to have 500 people come through our house on an open house. We just have to have one person uh, upon whom God causes them to look upon our house with favor. So, I began praying toward that end that God would do that. He would, he would cause one person to look upon our house with favor and, and make an offer on our house that we could accept. And uh, so, we just had one weekend yet to show the house. Saturday, 
nobody came. I mean, it was just a, a very disappointing day. Sunday afternoon, after church was over, we came back, opened up the house again. Very few people came, just, just hardly any interest. So this is now 8 o'clock at night, Sunday night. I'm, you know, we have to have a buyer by Tuesday. And I'm just thinking, wow, it evidently isn't going to happen. I was very discouraged. Uh, but I kept, kept believing, I know, God, you can do it, but it just doesn't look like you're going to. Well, the phone rang at 8 o'clock that night, and this woman said, I'm so sorry, I just saw the ad in the paper. This is before computer stuff, you know. So I just saw the ad in the paper, and could, could I come by and see your house? And I said, no, it's late, I'm sorry. You, no, of course I, I didn't say that. I said, yeah, yeah, c- come on over. So this, this is what happened. Uh, it's dark outside, the lights are on inside the house, and we have a glass door uh, that, that separates the house when we open the main door. And so uh, she rang the doorbell. I open the door. She looks through the glass door. Lights are on in the house. Her jaw drops, and she says, oh, I love it. <laughs> and honestly, I took her around that house, and then for the next three days, next two days, I'm sorry, next two days, her friends, her, her fiancé, uh, people, and all of them absolutely love the house. And I'm just smiling, going, I know what's going on here. You know, th- th- this is God causing these people to look upon our house with favor. And we got a buyer, sold it uh, that, uh, on that Tuesday, and, and we're able to move down to Louisville. I mean, it was just such a kindness of the Lord. But He can do that, you know, so, so God can work in the hearts of people. God can move the heart of a king the way He does channels of water. That's Proverbs 21.1. So, yes, indeed, God can do that. Okay, one more example here. Um, Isaiah 10. This is an amazing passage where we see compatibilist uh, agency, dual agency. This is God to the nation of Assyria. He says to Assyria, who, by the way, do you remember your Old Testament history? They are the nation that God raised up to bring judgment against the northern kingdom of, of uh, Israel, the ten tribes to the north. Many years later, uh, God raised up the Babylonians to, who, who defeated the Assyrians to bring judgment against the southern kingdom, Judah. Uh, so, so, the Assyrians are now the, the ascendant country in the Middle East. And he's, God says to Assyria, <clears throat> woe to Assyria, which, I, I mean, right from the very get-go, you realize you're in big trouble, Assyria, right? Big trouble. But look at how He describes Assyria. Woe to Assyria. The rod of my anger, the staff in whose hands is my indignation. Now, now, do you see how puzzling this is? Woe to you, Assyria, who who is doing my will, who, who is accomplishing my purposes, who is acting according to my desire and my design. I mean, isn't that just amazing? Woe to you, Assyria, who are my rod doing my will, my my staff in whose hands is my indignation against my people. Verse 6, I send Assyria against a godless nation. Who do you suppose that is, the godless nation? Israel, his own people. Wow, what a sad commentary. I send Assyria against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. So here's the point that he's making. He raises Assyria to do exactly what they do, but from Assyria's vantage point, are they thinking we're doing the will of God? We're we're obediently carrying out the will of God and and acting as His instruments in in doing this. Oh, no. They they despise God. They, They despise the people of Israel. 
And, and, and so they're doing this for purely selfish reasons. I don't have the, the next verses there, but it's basically the verses that follow are the king of Assyria saying, you know, in his haughtiness, you know, goodness, your, your, your uh, princes are, are nothing compared to our, our, our armies and, and so on. You know, we're, we're the greatest, we're the best. We, we can defeat anybody out there. The pride of, of Syria is showing forth through this, and yet it's God who is using them, right? Is that, is, so it's not, it is not the case that you can interpret this passage and say, it just happened to work out the right way. That Assyria came to this place of power and, uh, and, and, and might, military might, where it could bring judgment against uh, the Israelites at the very time that God wanted there to be judgment against the Israelites. And so, God said, oh, oh good, this is going to work out. It just happens to work just right. Oh, no, God raised them up. They, they were the instrument in God's hand. So, look again, verse 12 with me. Here's another indication of this. So it will be when the Lord has completed all of His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. Do you get the point there? What work is that? It's the work through the nation of Assyria. So who's the ultimate, who, who's the primary agent in this? Clearly, it is God. So it, it will be the case when, when the Lord has completed all of His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. Verse 15, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Who's the axe? Assyria, who's the one who chops with it? God. Is, is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? Same idea there. So indeed, you, you, ask yourself, you ask the question, how did it happen that Assyria brought this judgment against Israel? Answer, the Assyrians did it. And oh my, did they intend it. Did, did, did they ever will it? They wanted to bring this to pass. Every fiber in their being was leading them to do exactly what they did. And yet, that's not the whole answer to the question. How did this judgment take place on Israel? God did it. And who's the primary agent in this? God is, indeed. And, and is, Assyria, is Assyria still responsible for it? Oh, yes. Goodness, those, that statement in verse, uh, verse uh, 12 I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. So they will be held responsible for what they do, and yet God is praiseworthy for the just judgment He brings upon these people. And of course, His purposes there are to bring them into judgment, to realize their sin, so that later, big picture, later He might restore them and bring them back. I mean, it is so wonderful, my friends. Notice this as you read the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, that God's final word to His disobedient, hard-hearted people, His final word is not His word of judgment. Oh, it's there. That word of judgment is there over and over and over, but that's not His final word. His final word is a word of restoration of salvation of those very undeserving sinful people. So, indeed, th this is God's work by which He will eventually save them. And then finally, the last passage, of course, is this one we've pointed to uh, a number of times is Acts 2.23. 
Peter's statement, uh, this man delivered up, referring to Christ, of course, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Even more strongly is in chapter 4. This is also Peter speaking. He says, for truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Whom you anointed. Now, notice this. Both Herod, so we, we have this, you know, king over Israel, Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So, individual persons and groupings of people, uh, Gentiles and Jews, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So, indeed, dual agency, primacy of divine agency, they're held responsible for what they do, and God is praiseworthy for what He does. So, here we have it, my friends, compatibilist uh, passages in Scripture. Uh, notice them as you read. Put, put little C's in your margin like I've done, you know. These compatibilist passages are really remarkable uh, as we see the way, in, way in which God works. Now, the application of this that we'll have in the sermon coming up in a half hour uh, will be, in particular, the inspiration of Scripture. It's a beautiful example of compatibilism, how divine sovereignty and human free agency work together in bringing about the Word of God, which is simultaneously the Word of Isaiah, the Word of Paul, the Word of Peter. It's an amazing thing. So, indeed, what, what a glorious God we have, a powerful and mighty God who works in such a way that he, uh, he understands and makes use of the freedom that He has given to us, but not in a way in which we can stand opposed to Him in His ultimate purposes, but in which He, he incorporates the way He made us to bring about His purposes and His will so that He always reigns supreme over everything that happens. Praise be to God.